Welcome everyone to Cantus Firmus at the Movies. This is Cody, and my special guest today is Lenny Esposito. Lenny is an author and speaker who's been spreading convincing Christianity across the globe by stirring the hearts and minds of the lost and the church for 20 years. A pioneer in online apologetics with his popular comereason.org website and podcast, Lenny has also contributed to books such as the award-winning Apologetic Study Bible for Students, A New Kind of Apologist, and True Reason, Confronting the Irrationality of the New Atheism. And um, one of the reasons I, I want to talk to you about this is because I understand you actually do have a special sort of interest in in uh, the use of film for apologetics and, and um, film in the service of the gospel, those kinds of issues. And uh, could, could you kind of elaborate a little bit on what you've done in that area and what your interest is? Yeah, I think film is really, uh, really important nowadays because it's one of the last cultural touchstones that we have. Um, you know, art has always served to be a medium of communication uh, that bridges generations, it bridges uh, cultures, and it bridges um, different, uh, even economic spectrums. Uh, but we have lost a lot of that uh, in, even music is now kind of segmented and fragmented, and uh, everybody's their own DJ, you don't have a common referent. Uh, film is one of those last things, though, that we all share, that everyone can understand. So if, you know, uh, if I were to come up to someone and, and quote a line from uh, a band that was popular when I was a teenager, kids today may get it, they may not get it. But if I was to come up and say, you know, Luke, I am your father, everybody knows what that reference means. And they, they have a, a, an amount of uh, understanding as to what it implies emotionally, what it implies in terms of context. And uh, so we can use the ideas in film in very powerful ways uh, as a common language that really unites us. Uh, and, and it doesn't have a whole lot of baggage uh, tied with it yet. So I, I think uh, it, it's, one of those, it's one of those ways we can break down the barriers uh, between all the different silos that have come up. Are you a, you know, this person or that kind of person? Do you fit in this category or that category? Film kind of is one of the ways we can talk across categories and really get ideas across because that's what they do. They hold and, and transmit ideas very well. I'd be interested in, and I think we'll probably be talking about this a little bit later in the discussion, sort of talking about film as kind of a, a cultural touchstone that's kind of across the board. Uh, kind of regardless of what subculture you fit into. Um, it'd be interesting to hear how, how you view where this idea of Christian movies sort of fits into this. Uh, this uh, so maybe that's something we'll get into as, as we go forward. We, we, we may, because the two films we're talking about today, one is it kind of falls in the Christian genre camp, and one doesn't. Uh, believe it or yeah. not, even though both of them are, are saturated with biblical concepts. So I, I think that's a, a clear, you know, and, and back in my day, I mean, Christian film, quote unquote, uh, is, is a relatively small pool. Uh, it, in the 70s, yeah. what you had, you had the whole The Thief in the Night series, which is, you know, by anybody's standards, not something, not a, a barrier that's hard to, you know, leap above. So, <laughs> sure, sure. Or, well, I was going to say the late great planet Earth at the very least had Orson Welles narrating it. So that gotcha. was <laughs> something there. But then, you go, but then you go back before that, really. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. like all of art, I mean, you have Cecil B. DeMille in Ten Commandments. You have Ben Hur. Mm -hmm. 
you have in the in you have in the bells of Saint Mary. You you know you there are in the early years of film, just like in the early years of uh, of most art, the church drove a lot of the ideas there, and as um, it became more uh, immersed in the secular culture, of course, then that kind of fell away, and we lost some of that. Uh, but uh, it's it's interesting now that. <laughs> Just like you know, Christian music is no longer written by the JS box of the world, um, you know it's a it's a subcategory, and some people consider it somewhat lesser than popular mainstream music. And Christian film, a lot of times, just does not hit the level of quality that uh, some of the mainstream uh, films they yeah. would see. I'd be interested in getting into that a little bit more maybe as we, as we kind of move forward talking about these two films. So we're talking about two films that were uh, both made in the last year. Uh, one was directed by Martin Scorsese, uh, and it's called Silence, based on a book by Shusaku Endo, uh, a Japanese uh, uh, Catholic uh, writer, uh, which is based on a book by William Paul Young. Um, and the director of that was, isn't as well known. I, I kind of checked his IMDb. He's got a couple uh, credits under his belt. His name is Stuart Hazeldine. Um, and I'd be interested. Which, which one would you actually like to talk about first, Lenny? Well, let's let's start. I watched. I saw the Shack before I saw Silence. Um, okay. So I, I'll take these in order. And when I sat down to watch these films, I didn't watch them as a critic, or I didn't I didn't seek to sit down and outline uh, all the theological flaws that wasn't my initial goal i wanted to mm -hmm. approach each of them as a film goer would because i think that's the that's the best way to judge them from an audience perspective so i want to i want to caveat my uh comments with that um but to say still that there's a there's a stark difference between the two with the shack it started off interesting i i thought that the uh the the tale of Mac and as he's a child. And I don't think, I'm not sure that the, the um, him poisoning his father, I don't know if that's in the book or not, or if that's an well, adaptation the, just for the film. Yeah. But, because there's a, I've, I've read both of these books. Um, the Shack has been longer, but it seemed like a lot of the stuff that was happening in the beginning of the movie from the book. Um, I don't particularly, particularly I don't remember um, the neighbor who is kind of used as a model later for Papa? Yeah, right. From the book, I, I know there's there's discussion of him having a, a tough relationship with his father in the book, but I don't remember all these details in the film. Right. But maybe before we start discussing those, maybe I'll, I'll give just a really quick overview of the plot. Sure. It is it is spoilery, so if you haven't seen the film and, and you know want it to be a surprise, then you might want to check later. But so the, the basic premise is uh, Mac is the main character. He's sort of struggled to relate to God, and uh, particularly because of issues he's had growing up with his father. Uh, and he experiences this great loss when his young daughter Missy is murdered uh, by a you know some sort of drifting criminal serial killer. Sometime after, he receives a letter from God in his mailbox asking him to come to the shack where Missy was killed. And while he's there, um, he talks with each member of the Trinity. God the Father presents himself as a black woman to break through the negative associations that Mac has with his own abusive father. Uh, and uh, they help Mac to learn to forgive and to see God as loving instead of uncaring and punishing. The Cliff's Notes version of the film. There you go. Yeah, so, so okay, so now what, what, what were you kind of going to comment okay, about so so how, you, how you felt watching it? 
Well, watching it, I would say that in in summary, I would say the shack was a very 21st century American cultural reflection of God. It mm -hmm. it it felt very much um, almost a prisoner of our modern biases. Uh, it was very individualistic about Mac, about about his mm -hmm. needs. Uh, God was there working on him to help him overcome his difficulties. Uh, and I know there's a lot of controversy with the book and subsequently the film. Uh, how the Trinity is portrayed, do you portray the Trinity as one person or three persons? Or does that mean one being or three beings? Are we talking about modalism? Some of this is, is, is a difficulty that you will struggle with in film. You know, uh, does God being portrayed God the Father is, is that heresy? Well, I wouldn't quite go that far, that it's, that it's heretical in and of itself, because as you say, the film um, softens that approach by making God the Father appear as a person who gave Mac comfort in his childhood years. So, mm -hmm. so it's not, you know, the film almost soft soaps the, uh, the representation of God the Father from the book, by saying, this is just a representation. It isn't truly who God is, and it's not truly how he looks. And of course, even in the film, uh, there's a scene where, you know, God, you're going to now need a father. And so he, he Papa, shows up as a man, a, a, an elder man, in order to go through this one piece. But um, yeah. it, my, my, my overall impression of it was it's very much on, on uh, kind of a, a psychological idea of healing of forgiveness uh, and, and things like that, things that are very valued in the 21st century church, uh, just because the 21st century culture values those things as well. What it missed, and what I think it did, it did poorly with it, it, it by, by being so entrapped in its culture, it never got around to showing the holiness of God, the, the, um, what it means to be a fallen creature, how we all have the capacity for evil, what uh, my friend Clay Jones calls, we are all Auschwitz enabled. And it, 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 it not, sometimes it downplays that, sometimes it, it right out denies it when Mac asks God, well, what about all this stuff about you and wrath? And, and God in turn looks back at him and says, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, that's, that's, that's a, absolute refutation of the God of the Bible. That's, that, I would say, is heretical because it mischaracterizes who God is and things like that. So that was my initial impression of, of the shack. Uh, if I could draw a comparison to a, another film that I saw, and, and granted, I've, I saw this film when I was nine years old, so it was a long time ago. But the feeling I got from the shack was very much the feeling I got from Jonathan Livingston Siegel. It was this self-improvement, spiritual, you know, uh, spiritually wrapped, motivational. Kind of a th therapeutic yeah. gospel. Yeah. So that was, that was, and I don't know if you've, I mean, nobody recommends Jonathan Livingston Siegel. It's a, it's, it's a whole bunch of new age claptrap. Uh, I was nine when I saw it. So I, I, I have just, you know, I don't have perfect recollection on the whole thing, but the overall vibe, the feel of it was very much kind of that approach. 
Well, it, it, you talked a little bit about this this kind of idea that it's sort of a slave to its own kind of limited viewpoint of, in the film. Yes. And I noticed that in, I've kind of got in my notes that I kind of took as I was watching it, that sort of, I don't really, I didn't actually write that as, as a, that, that, that explicitly, but as I'm looking through my notes, I'm, I'm seeing where I was kind of seizing on that idea, <laughs> that, that problem. Um, and, you know, certain themes that come up a lot, there's this idea of religion versus relationship, religion and slavery to rules and relationship right. is love. There's kind of a God just wants to love on you sort of thing. I think this idea, like you said, the sort of positive denial of God's wrath. I mean, is there, is God a judge at all? Does God judge? Or it doesn't seem that that's, that's something that happens uh, in this particular world. Um, right. I think um, that there's... Oh, the sorry. problem... The problem is William Young, uh, and he's come out in other writings. Uh, he's he tends to be he's a universalist. He doesn't hold mm -hmm. to uh, this idea that some people will be damned for all eternity. He mm -hmm. he tends to believe that there may be those who um, hell is a place of purging that will maybe pop, open their eyes to see the glory of God. But he does mm -hmm. believe that all people will eventually spend life in a in a paradise state with God, which is. So his theology kind of comes through in the film in that way. And I, again, I, I think that's a, a problem. Let me give you a, a, for instance, I was at a Starbucks several years ago and a woman was at, you know, a table reading the shack. She was reading the book. And as I want to do, I walk up to her and I start a conversation saying, oh, tell, tell me about what you're reading. Oh, this is a great book. This is a book all about the relationship that we can have with God and how Jesus' love for us and things like that. I said, well, that's interesting. Are you, you know, do you go to church? Oh, yes, I go to this church here. And my, this is why I love my church because my pastor talks about this all the time. And, and, and I believe this. I believe how important it is for us to, to, you know, have this relationship with God and to grow with God. And uh, as I'm talking with her, I notice that she's using all of what I call these, this catchphrase Christianity, these bumper uh -huh. sticker slogans about what we should do. So I asked her, I said, well, can you tell me why it's important for us to have a relationship with God? And she says, well, what do you mean? I said, well, well, I have a lot of relationships. I get, uh, you know, fulfillment in my relationship with my wife, for example. I have fulfillment through my relationship with my children. I have friends, I have family. Why do I need a relationship with Jesus? And she said, well, it's like, I, well, I don't know. My pastor can say it so much. Anyway, she was stum stumbling over the, the problem. She never once mentioned sin. She never once mentioned atonement. She never once mentioned the fact that we are <coughs> beings, you know, that uh, hold the curse of Adam. And, and, and she, she had all the platitudes, and the relationship sounded really nice, but without the other stuff, it starts to make me wonder, is she truly saved or not? And this is pro one of the problems with our cultures. We can sound good, but sound loving, talk about relationship instead of religion. And, and all of that's really easy, but you say, well, why do I need relationship? And a lot of people just, unless you come down to atonement, unless you come down to the propitiation for sin and things of that nature, uh, then you'll be, uh, you know, you're not talking about the gospel anymore. And the shack was so, it bent over backwards to show a soft, loving God. 
that I don't know that it truly answered um, all of the questions that it even set out to ask. Some of the time it didn't even ask the questions. It didn't ask any of the questions about natural evil, for example. It only talked about moral evil, about yeah. man's inhumanity to man. Never talked about the idea of earthquakes or why you know children are born with spina bifida or things of that nature. Yeah. That's absolutely true. Well, another thing I, I kind of noticed, and and I'll, I'll admit this is you know certainly a concern and a problem, and you know one that that I think about a lot. But it's also the kind of problem that is going to be talked a lot in our particular age, our kind of post-Christian era. And theme that's in the film is this idea that bad Christians make God look bad, kind of thing. <laughs> often, you know, sometimes the case. You know, more yeah, often than I'd like to say, but. But 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 it's interesting that it becomes a major theme in this film when you look at all the other themes that are there. Um, that you know God is sort of, you know, distancing himself from the church <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, and um, but yeah, and and I think there's other things that sort of come through just stylistically, not even really theologically, but like, um, for example, you, you know, stuff doesn't really tip you off to where William Paul Young is coming from. Uh, I think some of the language that's in the film, or particularly in the book, not as much in the film, but in the book, definitely, and, and certainly some in the film, there's these kinds of ways of speaking about things um, that are, uh, I don't exactly know how to say it, but there, but there's kind of a, a theatricality to the yeah. speech at times. So, you know, this is supposed to be a family of working class whites, but they, they, they talk more like they're coffee drinking emergent authors. They, they, they use phrases like the great sadness and, you know, they call God Papa and things like that that just sort of feel, they don't really feel real. Like they don't, they don't seem down to earth at all. And um, it's kind of interesting because I watched, well, my, I, I read The Shack and my mom did too. My mom's, uh, I don't exactly know where I'd say my mom is as far as her, her faith is concerned at this point, but um, but she watched Silence with me and she read The Shack and she really liked Silence a lot and she hated The Shack. Interesting. And and I think, you know, there's perhaps part of it is that she's maybe a bit more hardened in her approach. She's not necessarily sentimental, but I feel like there's something in this film that in, in The Shack that sort of appeals to those who are a little bit more sentimental. Right. Uh, I, I don't want to say surface level, but it, it, it's tough to say because there's this other kind of question that I think we're going to kind of get out of this, which is, you know, what really makes a good movie or a bad movie? I mean, I, I know somebody who, or, or know of somebody, a friend of a friend who saw this movie right after she had lost her daughter and she thought it was very encouraging and helpful. And I don't, you know, I don't want to say, well, you know, you're wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, so, you know, the, the fact that the film is, you know, has, has some good points, but also is kind of tried at times or maybe, you know, are aesthetically kind of weak. I mean, how do we, how do we assess that? I mean, what, what is really, what do we call a good movie? What's the point of art? And, you know, what, what level can we say this is not really that good if we actually see that it might be useful for some people? Well, I mean, it, it, it can be useful, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's helpful to use it in any aspect uh, because mm -hmm. if, if you bring in two wrong ideas along with three right ones, uh, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump mm -hmm. as Paul has want to say. Um, and that's the part that concerns me unless you are uh, really good at discerning and you can talk through some of these things. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in that sense, you could talk through some of these things and, and it could be useful. There were some ideas in there that were valuable. Um, there were some ideas in there. Well, some of, some of the, uh, the creative aspects were heavy-handed and trite. I mean, you know, go, go with Jesus and see, he's out in the workshop and see some of the stuff he's working on. And what, what do you do? You get in a boat and you look up at the stars. Oh, yeah, I made the Pleiades over here. And, I, you know, stuff like that, I, I just thought was a little, it, the cheese factor rose to a, a little bit high mm-hmm. level there. Um, the other thing, but things that bothered me was when he starts questioning the father saying, where were you when Jesus was on the cross? And, uh, you know, Olivia, um, I can't remember her last name, the actress who played, Oh, Octavia, Octavia Spencer. Octavia Spencer, I'm sorry. Yeah. Octavia Spencer shows, plays Papa. Mm-hmm. plays Papa, shows her wrists, and her wrists have marks in them, scars in them. And while it's true that it did cost the pop, the father something to give the son, that's not it. The scars belong to Jesus because Jesus was the only one who was incarnated. The father, what it cost the father was his child, which is a bigger wound than any scars on any hands would show. And they missed that. They, they, that's when they start getting into modalism. That's when, that's when you have the heresy start to show up in misrepresenting uh, uh, who God is. Because the Father does not bear the marks of the cross in his, in his uh, person in that respect. So, yeah, and I think that was something that I remember hearing a lot about, debate about during the book. I don't remember how the book framed it up. I don't know if the film attempted to maybe reframe that because as I watched the film, I could see where that could be viewed as modalism or kind of a patri passionism. Uh, and, and to, to be, to be clear for those who don't know what that means, modalism is this idea that they're not really three persons in the Trinity, but that God sort of takes on different personas, uh, depending on the, the task that he's trying to accomplish. So there's really right. only one person. Um, so, but the way I understood that was it was supposed to be a kind of a way physically to represent the idea that you know god so identifies with the suffering that it, it's almost as if you know the father was crucified with the son and and i, I don't know that I, I don't know that i i mean i wouldn't say that's modalism but I, I think that it definitely created an impression for for a lot of folks that that was what what he was getting at and i'm not sure if that's if that's what it was trying to say maybe but i think a more powerful a more powerful approach would have been did it, would you have taken your daughter's place? In other words, same, same conversation at the same time. Would you have taken your daughter's place and, and died instead of her? Yes. So what costs you more? Her mm-hmm. being taken from you or you your own life being... Don't think that it didn't cost me anything to give up my only son. Mm-hmm. See, the, that's all they had to do. Mm-hmm. That's all they had to do. And they, and they missed that opportunity. Yeah. So. Well, it, it is, it's very tough. I, I think that this is a constant um, issue of consternation for theologians are, uh, you know, poor visual representations yeah. or metaphors for the Trinity <laughs> and the relationship that they have. And, and, and well, you know, certainly. And, yeah. and like I said, I don't necessarily mind Octavia Spencer and, 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 you know, having uh, the Holy Spirit. I, I like the way the book approached saying uh, better, whereas you could never, he could never actually focus on the person of who she is. She was always, you know, he's always, you catch a little better glimpse of a, out of the corner of your eye than looking head on that kind of idea. Sure. Uh, sure. Which, which was kind of an interesting concept. 
and, and so I was, like any good film, you know, a superhero film or anything else, you give a certain amount of license to the film, understanding that it's a limited medium and it has to make exceptions or, or you know, there, there are certain laws of physics that aren't going to work or what have you, depending on whatever the genres you're talking about. But when you take excessive uh, abuse of that license, that's where the problems come in, in any film. And Christian films, more often than not, will always take too much license with how human beings actually react. You know, everybody gets saved at the end of uh, sure. God's Not Dead, or, or, you know, they all happen to show up all at the same place at the same time. And this is where you get these wooden caricatures as opposed to uh, a real a real world example of how people uh, are and that's that's one of the criticisms of quote Christian film is everybody thinks they got to tie up everything in a nice nice neat bow and you, you know but human beings are messy sure um, well and and you know and I felt like you kind of talked about early on in the film was perhaps more interesting to you and and I'm with that completely I mean I, I think I was I was kind of following along. I was with it. I felt, you know, Max Payne. I, I sort of identified yeah. with what was happening. I was able to sympathize or empathize, uh, whichever the one is when, you, when you're not in their shoes, but you can relate. And um, so, um, but as soon as he gets into the shack and he starts talking with God, I feel like that's where things really kind of break down. And I don't envy the task of, of you know, filmmakers having to express something as complex as the perichoretic relationship of the members of the Trinity, yeah. but it feels like an episode of Full House. They kind of look yeah. at each other and laugh a lot, and it's just it's just real kind of dopey. I don't yeah, <laughs> dancing, I, yeah. to, dancing to pop music and and saying how how God enjoys Neil Young and things like that. You're going really kind of you know what is how does what does that even do? <laughs> you know is that to show that well, you're I, yeah, yeah. Now here's the interesting thing. Yeah. There is an account in the Bible of of what would happen if this kind of thing actually happened in real life and it's in the book of job and god doesn't do doesn't behave in any way shape or form the way he behaves in the shack i mean what does he ask he says who is this that darkens the council by words without knowledge dress for action like a man and i will question you and you will make it known to me right and god over and over says shall the fault finder contend with the almighty he who argues with god and let him answer so what god does is says you know so much. Where were you when I did this? You know, tell me how this works. If if you're so, you know, God doesn't sit there and say, I, you're my personal. Now, I believe that God works in all of our lives, but I think a, another misunderstanding that could come out of this film is that God should pay special attention to my pain and do something extraordinary to help me heal. That it's his almost his responsibility to reach out to me because I'm in pain. That this is one of the problems of the shack when it's trying to answer the problem of pain and the problem of suffering. It's actually giving a representation that says you can be the passive one and God will kind of work it through for you. Well, and well, that's yeah, bothered. that's that's kind of that you raise an important point, which is that you know god seemed to not care in the film god seemed to not care enough to uh save missy but he he went out of his way to arrange this meeting in the, in the cabin in the shack with mac in order to sort of deal with all of his his inner turmoil um right. and yeah it's, it seems it seems kind of strange um yeah and, and actually 
and you talked about you know how um, you know when God is sort of dealing with these questions in Job, but you know another account um, maybe that people might might identify with a little more, find a little more more appealing, is what does God look like when He takes on flesh and interacts with human beings? It's more complex. I mean, you do have you know Jesus weeping over over the death of Lazarus. Um, and, you know, he answers questions related to theodicy, you know, the, the, these young men who a tower falls on and kills, and they say, well, was it because they were particularly bad sinners? And he says, no, but uh, if you don't, you know, if, if you continue to sin, then something worse will happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. there, it, there is a, a more complex uh, representation of God in Scripture than is in this film, and, and certainly has an awful lot to do with a certain cultural outlook. Um, right. That exactly. sort of is placed upon God. We miss the idea that when Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father, because that's what Philip asked. And we miss, mm -hmm. uh, again, that we don't need the Father personified. I mean, because what did Moses ask? Moses asked to see God and says, he'll die. When, I, when uh, Isaiah was brought before God's throne and saw the holiness of God, his first reaction, again, was one of, total awareness of his own sin. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips. When Jesus uh, unveils himself, right, and calms the sea, the, anytime there's this, this representation of uh, uh, even a slight unveiling of God's holiness, the rea natural reaction of human beings is to cower in fear because we realize that that's not us. There's the separation, there's the distinction, there's the difference. And boy, are we evil. Boy, are we in need of a savior. Boy, are we, you know, um, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. That's the proper reaction to a holy God. It's nowhere in this film, not at all, not even a smidge, do I see anybody falling on their face before a holy God in that regard. I see God as my friend, God as my buddy, which harkens back again to that lady I talked about in this coffee shop. And that's a comfortable God. That's a safe God. God can be your buddy. Heck, I had Jehovah's Witnesses over last Sunday who told me that God is, you know, God should be your friend and, and uh, you want to listen to the advice that your friend gives you. And I, I sat stunned going, it's amazing how shallow their view of God is to think of him only as a well, in that yeah. regard. And if we miss the holiness of God, then we miss the, we miss the heinousness of evil. And both of those... Yeah answer the problem of suffering well and um so i kind of want to mention one thing that that uh i i thought i didn't really understand it it didn't make a lot of sense but it did remind me of, of maybe a better film <laughs> on this subject which is that there's the scene where uh you know they take him to find missy's body and then she's buried in this in this garden that the yes. holy spirit is kind of tending uh, which is him i guess yeah. apparently right they bury her, and this tree starts growing over it. And it reminded me of, uh, did you ever see Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring? No, I haven't seen that. It's kind of a similar thing where a young girl is killed, and there's a sort of grappling with theodicy, and, you know, where, where is God, and all this kind of thing. But th anyway, the spot where she's killed, they're like, the spring starts to form. And, like, so there's, it's kind of a similar oh. similar imagery. But th that is the thing, though, is, is I'm... As I watch it, what really is this particular theodicy or, or justification of God or answer to the problem of evil that the film is really I feel like I catch pieces of it, but I don't I don't I have trouble putting it together. All the pieces don't really fit. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, so there's, for example, would you have been, would you have expected that this, the judgment scene, which is probably the closest scene to like Job's conversation with God, that, that judgment scene where, where he's sort of invited to sit on, on, on the, the, the seat of judgment. Right, and not even from God, from wisdom, which is a personification in, in Proverbs. They're pulling from Proverbs 8. So. Yeah. But, but he's sort of talked into not judging God on this rationale that, um, you know, well, um, you know, everybody's bad, and you could pretty much judge everybody. And so, um, you know, I guess that means you shouldn't be mad at God for letting your daughter die. Yeah, it was, and it was, like, well, it was really flashbacks to Jim Carrey. I mean, it was... <laughs> that scene there, that's that that that's what I that's what I almost took it. Oh, you think you could be God for a week? Here you go. Let's try it and see what happens. You know, and that was a comedy. That's what I say. It's like it, even with the even with the African American woman, right? It's like well, if you've seen Oh God with George Burns, there was a scene where you know he's supposed to be God, and then uh, John Denver tries to point out, hey, this is God, and it turns out he appears as an African American woman, and so so there's there's I I, I don't know if that's subconscious, <laughs> uh, but uh, but it's, it's it's again these are these kind of these tried things are kind of they're kind of trite they're kind of cliche they're kind of like trod upon ideas which is the exact opposite I would say of a film like Silence because Silence talks about suffering as well but it doesn't have to be a evil child molester takes your daughter you know. I mean, again, these are these are such such uh, extreme caricatures of right. Your your dad is an alcoholic and a and a wife beater and ties you to a tree all all night long and and uh, you know make sure you really hate him, right? And that, that's just easy to to paint it that way. Or your um, you know the the person that the ladybug you have to forgive is a, a, a child abuser and and murders a seven year old, you know. Um, I think a more interesting question is where is God when the people who are standing up for him, when the faithful are being martyred because of their faithfulness? And uh, that's, that's one of the things I appreciated about silence. And this is, again, the difference between kind of a, a director like Scorsese who's not trying to pander to an audience to to preach to the choir or to, to make a quote Christian film so that Christians will come and see it. But to, mm. he's making a film that expresses some of his understanding of Roman Catholicism and his faith um, in well, that yeah, regard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Scorsese made a brilliant movie that seemed to have alienated both secular people and Christians. That's right. Uh. He did that very well. With, and some people said that this was his repentance. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if, uh, you know, I don't know if Scorsese, uh, you know, figures in on Kikuchiro, uh, you know, is that, is that his standard for him? I don't know, but I'm not gonna, uh, but it, but it is a, a more deft and, and it raises more questions about personally, how would I be in these situations? How would I react to others in that seeing yeah. them how would i react if i myself were as andrew garfield finds himself uh, ultimately so um it was it, well, it was it, it, yeah. a much weightier film you, you can't just write it off as as uh, you know you know um something that's that's a cliche sure yeah that doesn't try to give simple answers that would fit on starbucks cups 
right. uh, to just very complicated, difficult questions. It doesn't it doesn't have the, the agenda I think that the shack does. But I'll mention I'll mention one more thing just from from a film going perspective. <laughs> um, Sam Worthington, who plays Mac, I think does a pretty good job. Yeah. But was, was it as obvious to you as it was to me that he was actually Australian? Because it feels like there's a lot of places where he breaks out of his American accent and goes right into Australian. Yeah, he had a he had a little little trouble in some of the whispers and things like that. It's uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I've been actually time. I've been actually pretty impressed at the number of English actors uh, and Australian New Zealand. Uh, folks who have started to master the American accent because I would say 20 years ago that just wasn't the case. Americans, mm -hmm. you know, and we don't know, uh, we thought that the Americans could do a fairly decent English accent, but the other way it was always evident. You could always hear it. It's gotten so much better now that sometimes you get surprised when you hear a Hugh Jackman talk or somebody like that. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, but but yeah, this wasn't one of them. <laughs> this wasn't one where you were surprised. Did, did you want to say anything else about the shack before we maybe move on to silence? No, I think I think overall that's um, you know in, in summary, the flaws of the book are pulled through to the film. I just don't know that you can you can do that. But the film, while it maybe tries to um, soften a couple of the clear controversies that had arisen within the church uh it doesn't do anything that the film already that the book already did no there's 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 nothing that it that it accomplishes that you couldn't get from reading the book it's the same easy fuzzy heart story in both instances and so the i, I don't know that the film adds anything other than the fact that people who may not sit and read the book We'll sit and watch a two-hour film because it's quick. Sure. Um, that's the only thing that I can that I could think of that might make a difference. But that's that's a horrible reason. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you're really looking for ideas, read the books. That the books are the more important. Yeah. Point, so. uh, uh, that's kind of like uh, uh, becoming an annihilationist, but not converting to Christianity because at the very least, you don't have to suffer in hell forever. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so, um, so yeah, with silence, um, I, I might want to do kind of a, a plot outline too, and I'm going to try to make this really quick. I actually have like, I spent like a, a page writing out just because there's so much that happens, and I don't want to. They don't really need to go into every detail, but yeah. I'll, uh, I'll I'll be kind of brief. So the film takes place in uh, the kind of early to mid 1600s. So uh, most of the action act takes place. Actual What's historical. That? There was an actual historical persecution of Christians. This is a historical novel. Uh, novel. Although the novel's fiction, it's set in a historical time, where the hidden Christians were persecuted to this degree, and uh, so so a lot of it. While the individuals, you know, may not have existed, uh, the the goings on did exist. Yeah. Well, actually, and there are some of the characters are are specifically based on on real life figures as well. I know that uh, Rodriguez and um, um, Inoue, the uh, the governor and inquisitor, are both based on actual uh, persons that existed. Okay. But um, and actually, um, it's kind of interesting you mentioned that. Yeah, it is. It is based in fact. And after I read Silence um, a couple of years ago, I read uh, Gulliver's Travels. And there's okay. a place later on in Gulliver's Travels where he's in Japan. I think 
he pretends that he's Portuguese instead of British because the British aren't allowed in Japan. And there's this discussion of them like sort of checking him for sacred objects and letting him know that if he's a Christian trying to smuggle things in, he'll be, you know, he'll be killed or whatever. So it was really interesting to see uh, this, you know, book written, you know, a few hundred years ago discussing this, the same, the same topic, but um, so yeah, so anyway, so the, the film takes place in 1633, or it opens at that point. Um, Liam Neeson's character is a Jesuit missionary named Father Ferreira, um, and uh, he's basically established this mission in Japan, um, and we open with him seeing these Japanese Christians being tortured, um, and then we also, we learn in the next scene that he's reported to have apostatized, and two young Jesuit missionaries uh, who were his pupils, uh, one is played by Andrew Garfield, he's the main uh, monk, his name is Rodriguez, and the other is Adam Driver. Um, he, well, he, and Adam Driver plays Francisco Garupe. So they don't believe this rumor. They want to go investigate it. They hire a Japanese man named Kichi, Kichi, Kichijiro. Kichijiro. It's kind of hard. I'm going to have to say that a few times before it comes out nicely. But um, So he's apparently a Christian who was is, who is publicly apostatized uh, when his family was killed by inquisitors. They hire him as their guide. Um, anyway, they, they end up sort of being involved in two different uh, Japanese Christian communities, and they're sort of hiding by cover of night. So they, they sort of split up uh, at, at, uh, to try to hide from the uh, Inquisitors, um, but both of them are eventually captured. What Rodriguez learns is that they have they've seized on this method of torture uh, that's different than what he'd expected. He expected that they would say, uh, you know, we will torture you and you it, it, and kill you unless you repent. You recant, and he says, well, he's like, well, I'm fine with that." You know, he, he sort of grows up in this sort of Catholic notion of, um, you know, the kind of the glory of persecution and that kind of thing. Uh, but what he doesn't expect is that they have taken on this new approach, which is they will Japanese Christians and kill them if he doesn't recant. Um, so he discovers that that was the technique they used against Liam Neeson's character, Father Ferreira. Um, and he is asked to stamp on an icon of Christ. And in the book, they talk about this more, this image of Christ is so sort of central for him, uh, yeah. for his life and his devotion. Um, and he's throughout this film, he's seeing all this persecution. He wonders why God is silent. But at that moment, Christ calls out to him from the icon, asking him to trample on his face, claiming that that is the reason that he came in the world to be trampled. So he does so. Uh, we, we see later in the epilogue that he's basically assimilated as a Japanese. He's working for the government, presumably living as a Buddhist. But when he dies, his Japanese wife that they give him places a crucifix in his hands while he's in his coffin, suggesting that she understood that he had remained a Christian uh, throughout his life, despite professing otherwise. So that's the basic kind of outline of what happens in the film. Um, and, and I'll mention just a couple things that I remember. I, I kind of remember the book, but I didn't really check this before I read it. I think in the book, anyway, was raised as a Christian, um, which is why he is given this insight into how to persecute the church, hmm. to uh, you know, sort of use their love for each other against them. Um, and I, I could be mistaken about that, but I, that, I feel like I remember reading that that was the case. Um, so in any case, so it's uh, what did you? What were your feelings watching the film? Well, it, again, immediately, it was a much deeper film in that regard, and it was a much more sacred film. Uh, there's a difference, and I'm, I grew up Roman Catholic. 
but I hold to evangelicalism, uh, Protestant evangelicalism today. But there's still a difference in tenor and tone that the modern church can miss. So while um, tilt-up buildings and high school gymnasiums can service as churches, you, there's not the same impact as walking into a cathedral. And that's the difference between these two films. One is very familiar. It's a, it's a familiar place. On Sunday, it may be church because we have Christian garb around it, but on Monday, it's where we eat our lunch at school. Um, whereas the other one, you always talk in hushed tones. You, you never run. You're always bowing in reverence, right, in these. And the films pulled those same kind of appeals out to me in, in this instance. Silence did a very good job. It reminded me if, if uh, The Shack was Jonathan Livingston Siegel, Silence reminded me a lot of Black Robe. And, and that's, those are the two comparatives that I would, I would say. Because it talked about God as real, it talked about God as holy, and it talked about God as someone worthy of our sacrifice and worthy of uh, understanding that the next life is where the Christian's eyes should be fixed and not on the life today and the pain today. Um, it, it held the Japanese martyrs in high esteem. And of course, looking back at, back at it from someone who studied kind of a bit of Christian history and the martyrdom that's happened throughout the, the ages of the church, uh, silence reflected a truer nature of, of Christian persecution and Christian suffering and what suffering means in the Christian worldview than I would say the shack did uh, yeah. as, a, as, a, as just as, as in terms of Christianity as a whole. Um, taken as a whole. Um, I, I thought the questions that it raised were fascinating. I thought that the Kikichiro character, uh, who was a, a person who would um, deny God and come back and wish to re repent, right? And he asked for confession, and then he denied God again and asked for confession. And you start to get a little disdain uh, for this individual until, you know, and of course, these are all spoilers. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, uh, until you you find out that um, uh, Father Ferreira and uh, Father Rodriguez ultimately they apostatize because of the the weight of the deaths of these people that are upon them. Now, in, in that aspect, I don't know what the history is in Japan. If there were priests who apostatized, I know that in the early days of the church there were bishops. This was. Uh, there was a whole controversy about this uh, bishop mm -hmm. in North Africa who, who had apostatized over a huge persecution, but then he'd come back to the church. Can they, you know, or if they did, even didn't come back to the church, were the, were the sacraments that they gave away, the, the marriage and the baptism, were those authentic because the um, person who gave that blessing is now an apostate? Uh, and and so so these are real world issues that actually really happened in the church, and uh, it, it was fascinating to see. I, I didn't expect uh, Rodriguez to apostatize at the end. I would have expected uh, something different. And I think some of the reviews, if I remember right, of the film 
they almost said that, that the film was too perfect. It made it everything too nice and clean. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The main character uh, didn't, <laughs> didn't stay true to his faith. It was like, <laughs> yeah. or did he, you know, and that, and so that's the question, but, but, but clearly in the, in the annals of church history, uh, those who would stand strong in the faith, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, for example, it's, it's those who would stand strong in faith, even in the faith of others. I mean, there's, there's a, uh, an incredible story in, in the early chapters of Fox's Book of Martyrs of a Christian daughter uh, being tied to a stake and she's going to be uh, tortured, I, I think maybe even burned alive. And the mother tells her, you know, don't cry, daughter. Know that Christ is in heaven and, and your ultimate glory isn't there. And this is the mother watching her daughter that's going to be you know suffering for the sake of the faith um that's the nature of of christian martyrdom and and that's the one thing so so i was a little surprised at at, at the twist that rodriguez has um in that sense and i i would have almost thought that he would have rather killed himself in order to remove the motive for slaying the peasants rather than just apostatize. I, I, you know, I was expecting someone to drop down and kiss the icon as opposed to only showing them put their, putting their feet on it. Uh, I also understand, and, and again, this is, see, this is what I love about Scorsese because he doesn't, he doesn't have to explain everything. If you understood how important iconography was to most people across most ages, um, you would get what a big deal it is to just do something like that to put your foot on a on a uh, little four foot four inch by eight inch you know brass relief of of jesus that would be a big deal now he he kind of hinted at it that they all wanted the rosary beads that he had right any kind of something tangible that they could take away and and uh, garfield's character even says you know that worried me that they're so into the item as opposed to and and but that's that's the way most cultures are that's that's why even in the sure. catholic church relics became a, a big deal in the third and fourth century because they were they were tangible symbols of uh, an intangible faith and, and yeah, I, th yeah. I, I think it's interesting that, that what his what his temptation is 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 them saying, well, it's just a formality. It's it, it's just a nothing, right? It's it, it's no big deal. You're just stamping on a piece of, of, but they know it is a big deal. Otherwise, they wouldn't be killing people for it. Yeah. It's got to be a big deal. Uh, but uh, that not that the way temptation works? Isn't that the way compromise happens by justification, by saying, well, this isn't as big a sin as as, you know, others have made it out to be i can just do this and still retain my faith and at, at the end of the film i thought left really solid questions of how what does it mean to be faithful is it the four guys who died on the crosses in the ocean or is it the one who lives out his life identifying you know smuggled christian items in in their um imports and then dies with a with a hidden cross in his hand. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, I thought it was a again it, it probed a lot of issues and it did a really good job of talking about suffering from that perspective. Yeah, I, I actually I I, I kind of jotted that down in my notes as perhaps a theme, which is 
as I watched this film, maybe it, it comes from me being sort of more Protestant, but um, it, what I kind of written down was this theme of the danger of faith that depends upon institutions and icons. And what Rodriguez does say exactly is, I worry that they value these poor signs of faith more than faith itself. Um, and it seems like that all this action that happens and all this drama is driven on this premise that there's a need for priests uh, in order for the church to function and kind of a fear of sort of this impious symbolic action. And, and that's what gives the oppressors power. But right. the film seems to suggest that Christ cons and sacraments, even if they are useful in some sense, but in the poor and the weak, which is why he became one of them. That, that, that felt like a, where the film was maybe going to me. I don't know if you coming back from me from more of a Catholic background, maybe you, you saw that differently, but. Well, that, I mean, and, and more than a Catholic background, there's, there's, we, we've lost our, this is what I talk about the, the, the poverty of our modern culture. We've lost the concept of how important uh, ritual is in our day. So this is why when you became a Christian in the New Testament, you were baptized immediately. Baptism played such an integral role. It's like saying, I want to be married, but I really don't want to go through a marriage ceremony. You know, or I don't want to, I, I tell people, you know, who ask, is it ba being baptized really important? I said, well, what would you think if your if you're soon-to-be spouse would say, well, I want to marry you, but I really don't want to, anyone to kind of know, and I'm not going to put my ring on. You know, I don't want to have any outward symbols of it. I just, I just want to be married to you you'd start to doubt what their commitment level actually is. Like, what, why? And uh, mm -hmm. with, with uh, people in the ancient world and, and really all the way up until modern times, this going through ritual, having, having certain symbols, having um, a recollection of these things uh, was important. It was part of how we reflect inner our inner understanding, you know, uh, even Roger Scruton talks about how the cathedrals were built with the intention that when you walk into them, you would, you would speak in hushed tones. You would see that there's, this is a place of grandeur and of glory to God. And, and you should then, um, react in that way. And, and today we're just, we're just almost too, so casual with our faith that we miss it. Uh, so part of this, I, I saw as just a reflection of, the normal life and times, especially of a culture like Japan that is not westernized, it's not anglicized, of course they're going to relate in ways uh, of iconic understanding where there's a, you know, there's a Buddhist statue on, in every house. So, so um, holding a, a cross or something like that would mean something to them. Doesn't mean, now, Again, we caution that with as you mature in your Christianity and you have liberty and you understand that, that you know, idols are nothing, right? We have that whole explanation in First Corinthians about meat being sacrificed to idols, and idols really are just, they're sacrificing them to statues, and statues don't do anything, so don't ask where the meat comes from and eat it. Uh, there, there is some of that, but, um, but there is a, a uh, it is a way of communicating that is not necessarily verbal, but uh, it is visual which is what film is as well. So, so I didn't have as big a problem, you know, seeing the icons. I just, I just saw it as a limitation of their time, just like uh, we have certain limitations in our time uh, that we may be blind to in other ways. Sure, sure. Well, and uh, yeah, so 
I think about you know how how on one level, when they you know when in, in the book of Acts they would ask Paul, what do I do you know what, what do I do to be saved? And he'd say, repent and be baptized. Right. But yet he also wrote in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians that <laughs> that you're saved by grace through faith. Right. And so there's this one level that Paul acknowledges that these things are necessary because they're part part of the faith and they're part of what it means to come into the faith. These rituals are are here. They bring us sort of out of the profane and into the sacred. Um, but at the same time, those aren't the things that actually save you. So there, there's a middle ground between our kind of secular age, as, as, as Charles Taylor describes it, where there's no longer a distinction between the sacred and the profane, but everything is, is profane or, or, or secular or you know, normal, whatever you want to call it. Um, sort of other side, which you know, uh, goes too far in the other direction. And, and I, I did sort of feel like as I watched it, if it weren't for this perspective on, on, on icons that they had, you know, th this movie would kind of be a non-starter because th nothing mm -hmm. would be able to really fall through that, flow through in that way. Same thing with the, the necessity of the priests. You know, for, for them, for the Japanese, if we get rid of the priests, then we've got we've stamped out Christianity because right. first of all these people need the priests in order to to be to to, the, to celebrate the sorry observe the sacraments um, in order to continue in their faith and so you have a Christianity that is dependent upon institutions and you know if Japan is a swamp which is the language that's used in the film that Christianity can't grow in Japan right it's it's a swamp not because Christians can't live there but because church buildings can't be built there <laughs> because they'll be torn down. Um, and so that that was one element that I, I and I don't know how much that was in the in the forefront of the mind of, of Endo, who who was a, was a Catholic, you know, Japanese yeah. Catholic or, or yeah, Spicesi, very much but, as what I understand because he he uh, I guess he said it even more than once that that he had he had a certain level of um, I don't worry disdain, but he he uses that swamp language you know more than one time so. So it, it it was definitely something that he held his homeland uh, accountable for. Hmm. Now, I mean, realize the Portuguese were literally the first Christian missionaries to come into Japan in that regard, and so um, so yeah, Christianity would be would have been understood in that in in a very Catholic way there, which is which is again just fine, uh, and it, and it didn't it wasn't until the late 1800s, the modern age, maybe when Japan starts to become more and more secular, and then even after uh, uh, World War II, where Christianity makes any headway at all, and it's still a, what, 1% Christ, uh, Christian? It's, it's a very, very small uh, number. Um, but, so there's, you know, how they understand, and, and I think it was I even explained in the film that you know, I don't. The, the Japanese really didn't understand Christianity, and maybe the Christians didn't understand the Japanese uh, all that well either. And you had these these conflicts of culture as much as you had conflicts of faith. Of course, it's going to be the primary focus because it's easy, more easily discerned, more easily seen in the contrasts of of what Jesus is versus Buddha and things of that nature. It's worth noting, though, that um, the Japanese despite what they believed, did not actually stamp out Christianity. No. Um, yeah, and, and, and it, it survived underground until it was finally allowed to sort of come out into the open, you know, a few hundred years later. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a... Anyway, so um, um, 
I, I did want to. Um, oh, the one thing I the thought would you might have an interesting thought on small discussion of this concept of relative truth. Um, the inquisitors yes. claim that Christianity may be true in Portugal, but not in Japan. And Rodriguez reasons that if a thing is not true everywhere, it's not true at all. <laughs> and yes. um, I, I wondered, I wondered how you felt watching that sort of as as an apologist. I'm sure that you know. Yeah, I, I, I watched that. I went, oh, that was that. You know, there there were some scenes where I expected the um, the stock answer, where Kikuchiro comes to ask for repentance, maybe that third time, and uh, I expected Garfield's character to, to narrate over top of it. You know, the voiceover to say, "Well, Jesus, seventy times seven. You know, how many times should we forgive?" That didn't that didn't play out, uh, which was interesting. He just kind of did it, but you could tell he was hesitant to do it. Um, but at the same time, when he when he offered that argument to the inquisitor, um, it was interesting because even after that, he says, "What you have you have no no answer," <laughs> you know. It's like, oh, and basically, so we we're just going to disagree. Then is what it comes down to. And mm -hmm. that was the only point in the film I think where where Rodriguez bested the inquisitor. I think that was the only spot where it kind of he left him tongue tied. Which I thought was fascinating. So um, yeah, I love that idea, and that's one of those pieces that's so brief, but but in it's in need of teasing out more. And this is why what what I like to do with films in general is to sit down and watch them. But then let's let's have a a piece of pie and a cup of coffee and let's talk about what well, what did you think about that one point? You know. Can, so rather than saying, well, I, I'm going to take someone to this film in order to change their faith, I want to take someone to a film and talk about one idea and see if that one idea can be, you know, where does that fit? Does that help draw them closer to Christianity or, or, um, or is the um, filmmaker trying to lead them maybe farther away? Does it fit within your broader worldview? Does it make sense? And things like that, and I think that's a that's a excellent uh, little syn synopsis of how we can do that. It's it's interesting. You kind of talked about the stock answers and things like that. It makes me think about how in a lot of Christian movies there'll be a reference to scripture or some theological principle that feels kind of rehearsed and kind of heavy-handed and um, overly right. explicit. Um, whereas in this film. And, and, and even like, you know, you can go back and read, you know, Nietzsche or, or you know, some of these atheists and, you know, from, from you know, you know, 100, 200 years ago. And what's fascinating is they're so thoroughly soaked in scripture as just a sort of kind of background knowledge that they have that it's not necessarily something they just quote when they're trying to make some specific explicit theological point. It's something that comes out of them. Yeah. And you get a strong sense watching this film that there's all these there are all these allusions to scripture. There are occasional references to scripture, but they're not necessarily heavy-handed. It's not like I'm going to quote this now for this specific point. It just sort of comes into regular conversation. It flows in and out because they're just saturated in it. Yeah, it's fascinating exactly. to me how how we've lost that. Right, and 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 you almost sometimes even when you're talking with with other believers when they start doing that you're starting to say okay are you just trying to put on your christianese you know to sound holier to sound uh, wise or something like that yeah so so right it should be natural it should be a, a, if it's if if 
you're living it, it, it will come out. You, sure. And you don't have to work at it. And and that's that's one of the big differences between the Christian movie and you know, and the non-Christian movie in the sense of of um, one that's kind of at least up to this point, those movies that are made by Christians for a Christian audience. It was one of the reviews of Silence I thought was fascinating. Where uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, the critic said. Unless you're one of the faithful and have an interest in the internal workings of faith, this is just a long slog for us. So it's like, it's like, and I can see that. I can get if you don't understand what faith is and, and what motivates an individual to suffering for his beliefs. If you're, if you're a pragmatist and you're a dyed-in-the-wool secular pragmatist, this film is going to make no sense to you whatsoever. It's going to be just a log slog of people talking to each other, and you're going to leave your leave the theater scratching your head. And maybe that's why it didn't do, you know, uh, didn't have a box office bonanza. Uh, maybe it was too Catholic for the evangelicals to care about. I don't know what the case is, um, but but I thought it, it it was a more real reflection and uh, how it should have how it should. Um, really kind of reflect that a little bit more. And, and I mean, watching it, and I, I managed to see it at the theater, but it took me a while. I had to find one and, and, and managed to get there at the right time because it didn't play for very long and, and didn't play for very, didn't play very close to me either. Yeah. But um, watching it, really beautiful film. I mean, it's, it's absolutely stunning to watch. It won an Academy uh, Award, right? For cinematography. Well, it was at least nominated. Did it actually win? I, I, I'm, you know, let me look. I'm not sure. I thought it might have. So it was nominated for cinema. It was the, it was the only nomination it got was for cinematography. I think it deserved more. But at the very least, I mean, it was almost like that. That was a give me. It had to at least be nominated for it. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, it is absolutely it, beautiful to watch. Yeah, it looks great. It it really does. So. Um, but 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 in a very kind of dark and brooding sort of way. I mean, it's. Anyway, yeah, it did yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, and the 89th Academy Awards at one best cinematography. So, oh, one. Okay, well, that's good. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, uh, but man, yeah, it's and, and and the shack. I mean, the shack is brighter overall. Um, it's the shack. A lot of the it felt very computer generated. There's some scenes that are darker, like before mm -hmm. when he gets to the shack before he sort of it's transformed. Um, for him to sort of see God, um, you know, it feels kind of dark, and then it sort of becomes this very bright place, and there's a sort of garden, right. and I mean, aesthetically, it is, I mean, it, it is, it is, you know, something to look at in a lot of in a lot of places. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. It, it felt um, it felt a little somehow more hollow, though. At the same time, yeah, it felt well, like some, it, it of, felt the, like a, yeah. some of the approaches so were, were some of the approaches were very kind of um, again like. Stalker. I mean, you know the scene where where he and Jesus are are running on the water or walking on the water, kind of thing. It's just it's like that that kind of well, that's been done, <laughs> and it, it, it's been done in comedies as much as it's been done, you know. And it, it, so it's so even the idea isn't new. And then to to film it, you know, from a either they they shot it from below, of course, on and then they shot it. It, it just there wasn't anything new and interesting it, the the shots seem to just 
serve up as a um, stage for the performance, but they weren't works of art in and of themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably a good way to say it, that it kind of is it's about carrying you through. Um, I wanted to kind of discuss one more thing, at the very least, about silence, and then it might be, might be cool to just sort of comparison and the sort of discussion of Christian versus secular and that kind of thing. Um, the, the, the central idea I kind of feel like in the film is, is what does it actually mean to follow God? And evangelicals watching the film may not necessarily get the significance of the icon, but uh, at the very least, they would, I think, be troubled by this notion that Rodriguez feels that it's more loving to save the lives of these Christians uh, and then pretend to be a Buddhist and, um, you know, not preach the gospel, not evangelize, and sort of let the church die so that he saved some lives, but you, you could argue that, that some souls were lost in the process. Right. Um, you know, watching it, you know, how, how did you feel about that? And I, I, I can't help but wonder how Shusaku Endo felt, Endo felt about it as he was writing it. I'm, I'm curious about that as well because I thought that did leave a, a, a big question mark in the film um and, and that's one major point that it just didn't resolve i don't think it i don't think it did a good uh, it, i don't know that he was trying to resolve it i think he he wanted to ask the question and tease out possible answers but i don't know that he resolved it in and of it in and of itself um because there's just too much tension there at one point um garfield quotes tertullian right he says the mm -hmm. the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church and you, the more and and they agreed with him. They said we found the more people that we martyr, it, it doesn't work. It just keeps they just keep growing. It has the opposite effect. So there are hints in there that martyrdom is the preferred way that Christianity has flourished, especially in non-Christian areas and in non-Christian life. This is how the church has grown, and uh, the fact you you it almost wonder that is is one of the messages endo is is saying is by their apostasy they actually thwart that growth because now there is no more martyrdom which means there is no more seed well and i don't know that he's trying to say that explicitly but it's an again it offers an interesting question it, it does well and and so you know christ seemingly calls out from the icon and says to, to stand because that was the reason he came into the world. And right. there's this idea that Christ identifies with suffering. And in that moment, I think it's very easy to say, okay, that makes sense. Save some lives and maybe that's worth it. But as far as living out his life as a secret Christian and being a pagan on the outside, um, you, you wonder did, whose life did that save beyond his own? You know, was that, was that an act of love for others or, or was that, I mean, you wonder, are you supposed to view that as one in the same action with the original sort of pseudo apostasy? Right. Because I, I think and, you and could distinguish them. Well, especially between, because he talks to Ferreira when, after a Ferreira apostatized and it's not merely that he himself stamped on the icon. He's writing a book to talk about all the flaws yeah. Of Christianity, right? And that's that's uh, that's a big deal now. It's so so it's it's grown. It's gotten as sin does, as a little compromise does. It leads you to compromise in more areas, justify those uh, additional 
compromises with the same logic that you did the initial and it, and it continues on from that and um, well and then Nissan, Nissan plays Ferrera as genuinely ashamed is kind of how I how I yeah. saw it yeah, yeah absolutely because I think the hint was that he was as uh, Rodriguez was a, a secret Christian because there's a couple of times when he says our Lord yeah and, and I noticed that specifically in, in and the second time he does it, uh, Rodriguez calls him on it. Says, "Well, you said our Lord. Oh, maybe I misspoke. You know, he's trying to. Well, maybe. What do you mean, maybe? <laughs> so, so um, there, there was um, something that Mokichi, um, uh, one of the Christians um, that Rodriguez interacts with in one of the villages, uh, asks Rodriguez before he's going forward to sort of turn himself into the Japanese to protect the priests." Uh -huh. um, and it has to, it's a question about faith. Um, Rodriguez tries to sort of encourage him in his faith, and Mokichi asks, my love for God is strong. Could that be the same as faith? And I wonder if that could be sort of an interpretive key with Rodriguez, that Rodriguez, his, his heart and his intention is to act out of love, love for God, love for these Japanese. Um, he may not have the faith, <laughs> the, the strength of, of faith and conviction to, um, you know, live that out with, you know, total bravery and uncompromising, you know, uh, you know, an uncompromising approach or whatever, but, but his love is there. And, and, and you get the feeling that maybe that's where Kichijiro, who is sort of the betrayer, the Judas figure, uh, who, yeah. um, is sort of a Christian. Uh, he has to continue to ask, <laughs> you know, um, uh, for forgiveness um, and, and to confess his sins uh, to Rodriguez. But uh, you feel like maybe that's Kochichiro's situation. That he actually, at the end of the film, he he has the he he's found with a, a Christian image on his person, right? right. Um, when he's supposed to be living sort of as a pagan, and so. Uh, he's martyred as a Christian, presumably. You don't, he's taken away, and you don't know if he's killed or not. That's presumably right. he is. Yeah, but, I, I, but I, I, it's interesting I, that he actually is martyred, whereas Rodriguez is not. Yes, that's, and that's, that's what I saw in the film, is the primary contrast between Rodriguez, who, who initially is so strong in his faith and continues to go down that path, but ultimately becomes a, an apostate in every way, shape, and form other than perhaps internally um versus kichiro uh, where who outwardly does it you know i'm weak i'm weak denies it but comes back denies it but comes back denies it but comes so he keeps living a christian life until he gets caught and then denies it but he then he goes back and tries to live the christian life again uh initially and this is one of the geniuses of the film is is you are supposed to disdain kichiro you're supposed to look upon him as yeah, this weak the guy, but at the end, he's still living his faith, and Rodriguez isn't. So, who actually is the weak one? It, I, I find it just—it's it, really an interesting, interesting uh, comparison between the two figures. Um, well, particularly because Rodriguez fashions himself as Jesus, and Cochichiro uh, as Judah, Judas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He he uses some of that language. Yes, what you go, what you do, do quickly. Yeah, yeah. says those yeah. kinds of. Um. Well, did you want to maybe move on to just talking a little bit about um, comparing the films and that kind of thing? 
Sure. I, I would say one thing at the end, though, on silence. Oh, I'm, sure. I'm brought to an idea in John 15 uh, that where Jesus tells his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of this world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, right? And, and, that's, and, and he goes on to say, uh, they're, they're going to persecute you. And uh, he says, but when the helper comes, I will send whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So there's an idea in the Gospels that bearing witness is a reflection of your faith. And um, so my theology argues that uh, while there are those who may apostatize and live as secret Christians, um, they are more of the lots of the world living in Sodom and not living a fulfilled Christian life. Whereas, you know, you let the martyr, it, it's difficult, but you let God deal with the martyrdom and you stay faithful to your, to your witness. It, see, it seems that's the message, at least the biblical message that uh, I get from the, from the scripture. One thing about the whole notion, the, the whole idea of a Christian film versus a, a non-Christian film or a secular film or whatever, um, I did want to note one theme that seems to be in both films, which has to do with Christ's identification um, with the suffering and the weak. Um, because that does that does ring in both films. It's definitely stronger in um, silence, but um, you know, I think the the idea of uh, nail marks on Papa's arms and and uh, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the shack, Papa talks about you know identifying with Missy, not leaving her. Um, there's this kind of identification of of, of that God sort of suffers with the suffering. Um, it's not as central as a theme, but it's definitely there. Um, and uh, I wondered, you know, because that is sort of a point of comparison or something that's shared between the two films, um, how did you feel about how both films address that point? Well, obviously, it's more explicit in the shack in the sense that he says it, right? <laughs> or the, 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 narr the script, the dialogue. Uh, oh, sure. Well, yeah, because nothing's implicit in the shack in a sense because... Yeah. Everything's on the sleeve, yeah, on the nose, exactly. yeah. Exactly. Uh, in Silence, uh, at the beginning, Andrew Garfield, and it, it, maybe it's a bit of, you know, Chekhov's gun, but he says, I wonder if when he first sees the, the Christian, Japanese Christians being martyred, he goes, I wonder if I could have their faith. I wonder if I could stand their, their uh, martyrdom. And uh, so, but you see him through most of the film, grow in his conviction and his defiance of the inquisitor it's only again when he when he's faced with the death of uh, others in, in unspeakable suffering and unspeakable horrors that he then starts to think that he's heard from jesus and uh, recants because uh it's he's doing the thing that jesus himself came on earth to do uh, so uh, I, I think that we see, we, you get a feeling that God is there. I, I, there's just a general feeling of holiness. And, and, and I appreciate that because while the shack says, I'm with her in her suffering, 
I think silence displays it better. You feel God there. Mm. You feel that this is a holy moment, that this, these people who are dying for their faith are dying for something real, and they're dying for something good. And while, um, you know, you can despise the, the Inquisitor and his torturers, um, there is something of significance going on. And even though the evil is being perpetrated, you can see that, that God is being glorified in the midst of it. I can't, I don't see that in the shack. I hear it. They, they talk about it. But you don't ever experience it in that same way. It, it, it removes you out of, the shack you tend to walk, you almost start to reflect, well, what about my problem here? Does this, oh, that God, that doesn't mean God, you know, oh, that makes me feel better because I must, I'm going to say that God believes in me and he's going to look it up. And, and it makes you feel better in the sense that you're thinking that, that God's going to pay attention to me and my problems now. That's, that's the attitude that you get coming out of the shack, coming out of silence. The attitude that you get is uh, the Hebrews chapter 11, you know, the martyrs of whom the world was not worthy, right? Men who suffered uh, by being cut in two, by being torn apart by, you know, all of whom the world was not worthy. That's the feeling that you get. Not, I want to be those guys. You may want to be Mac and have a weekend with God, but uh, you definitely don't want to be a Japanese martyr, although you sense that they're closer to God than you'll ever be. So. Well, it, yeah, and I wonder, you, you, you kinda, I think you seized on something there as far as the way the, this notion is presented. In, in silence, you get to, you see the suffering, you sort of see the banality of evil, that it's sort of this bureaucratic <laughs> process. Yeah, exactly. and, and you also see, um, you know, Andrew Garfield's, um, you know, deep personal relationship with Jesus. Um, and in the shack, all you see is Max suffering. And he's, that whatever happens to Missy is presented as somehow otherworldly. It seems... Yeah so cruel and so wicked and so evil, but it's, you know, it's not something you can even catch a glimpse of. So it, and, it, it, you know, it kind of makes it, your imagination, you know, sort of runs wild and it sort of becomes, you know, something that's so terrible that there's, there's no, there's no possible excuse that God could have for not stopping it. Yeah. It, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's almost cartoonish in that regard. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I think that that's a good point that, with silence, you you're able to put yourself in this position of suffering, maybe in, in a way that feels more real. Able to yeah. sort of follow the logic of of this notion um, that Christ identifies with the suffering, when you can kind of identify with the suffering. You know, I think there's always something about us that we there's something about when when we hear about the suffering of others that it hits us in a way that our own suffering doesn't, at least yeah. in theory. Right. Um, kind of moving on to this, this sort of, just the aesthetic quality, the way that these, these things are presented as, as far as just their execution. Um, how would you compare the shack and silence? Well, I mean, obviously Scorsese is a master. He's, you know, nobody doubts his, his, uh, creative, uh, filmmaking that he's a, he's one of the top directors doing it mm -hmm. so um 
it's a little unfair to say, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. To, to, to pull up the guys from the minor leagues and to say, okay, you, you get to go against the superstar pitcher and let's compare you guys, you know? So I, I don't know if that's, that's a, an adequate comparison or not, but, um, but I think again, the biggest difference between the two is um, Scorsese allows questions to go unanswered. He, allow, he doesn't wrap it all up in a nice, neat bow. Um, and he lets the dialogue breathe and, and doesn't try to answer. Although there's a lot of nuance there, he doesn't try to have, explain and unpack it and things like that. Those are the primary criticisms I have of, like I said, these, these Christian films where it's, where, you, you know, you, you would go a lot longer, you'd go a lot farther if you had some of these kinds of dilemmas where maybe not everybody ends up, uh, it, you don't have what we call a Brady Bunch ending all the yeah. time. So, no, yeah, you know, and, and yeah, and I think you bring up a fair point about comparing, you know, a fairly new director with Scorsese. And, and, you know, certainly I've seen, you know, a handful of indie films with new directors that I watched and thought, oh, there's this interesting idea here, but you know, the execution was a little weak and, yeah, there was this problem here, and it is different, and I think that's fair. Um, and you know, uh, it was kind of a, a film that Scorsese did that was kind of a bugaboo for evangelicals: The Last Temptation of Christ, which um, is still a movie that I watch and and, and felt my faith deepened by. <laughs> and so, there's something that Scorsese is is able to do, even with content that um, isn't so neat and cut and dry, that has problems. Um, right. and, and so, you know, that's a testament to his ability for sure. At the same time, although the, the Shaq's director was kind of new, you also saw that there was, there was money behind it. It was yeah. a, a very polished production. Um, and it made more money than Scorsese's did. I yeah. mean, you know, I think they, the grosses for silence were like nine or $10 million, something, you know, and it was a $50 million budget. It wasn't a huge budgeted film, but it was a pretty low grossing movie as compared to, I know I don't know that the shack made a lot of money. I think it, it, it's still less than a hundred million. Uh, who knows what the DVD sales are doing for the thing, but. Well, and perhaps a better comparison would be between the novels, the, yeah. you, know, the, 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 you know, the money and the star power and that kind of yeah. thing. Um, and, you know, as far as that's concerned, they are very different books. And, and I would say, honestly, that first of all we've complained about the shack a lot but i would not say it was a, on the whole com completely a terrible movie i mean there were i was surprised at places um that i i i was connecting with it as much as i was yeah. a lot of happens a lot less once they're in the shack but um you know the subject material the subject matter the material beneath or beneath the film is is kind of where it's at and in this case, you know, you had a book that for in the shack that was, I would say, improved on in the film, um, but still failed to really do what I think a movie is supposed to do. <laughs> um, mm. It 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 kind of felt like a a dramatic sermon that might be preached in a right. you know kind of more progressive kind of emergent type church. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and silence didn't feel like that. Silence felt like a work of cinematic art. I mean, yeah. it, I was affected by it consistently. 
I there there weren't really points where I felt pulled out of it. Shack a lot. There were a lot of places where I'd be watching the shack and I'd be kind of in it, and then I'd feel myself pulled out. Like ah, this is kind of stupid or whatever. Yeah. Um. And I yeah I agree. I wasn't able to consistently go through it. So so and and the director is a, a kind of a a slave to his source material. Let's face it. Uh, Silence. It was a, a award winning book. I mean, it, you know, the shack was originally self published. So. Mm-hmm. You know, those yeah. are, again, from the starting point, those are those are two different starting points. And, and but again, I think it says something that I don't know anyone who's read the book Silence. You know, how many Christians do you know who have read that, and how many Christians have read The Shack? So it says something about mm-hmm. our our modern day biases and what we what we value and how we read it. We want to know about the my pain and me right now in. in you know, even though we're living in the most um, uh, affluent time ever in the history of humanity, and one probably the most affluent nation in, in the history of humanity, you know, we're all worried about our pain. <laughs> well, that's the that's yeah. the thing that God has to answer, right? When I talk to atheists, oh, they're all about that. Well, I don't like the way that, that he treats those people over there because that makes me feel bad about them, or uh, you know, all that kind of stuff is. Um, seems to be where, where everyone's focus is and uh and it sounds good but it, it's really again you as you say silence gives you a whole different perspective on people faith and what it means to be um holy and walking in your convictions well and and uh, to clarify the issue of the budget and box office uh silence as you said had a budget of 50 million and earned 16 the shack had a budget of twenty and earned ninety six. Um, so, so it looks like Silence didn't turn a profit, and the shack uh, just about did five times more than its budget. Which means that they'll make more like and, that, because if, if you if you can do anybody who can invest twenty million to make ninety, they'll do that. Mm-hmm. That's that's Absolutely. the ultimate. That's the ultimate uh, language of Hollywood. It, it, it's not Christian or secular. It's green. So. So, uh, if unless you had more, more thoughts, I might want to wrap up with uh, just a question. I, I'd be interested in getting your answer on, which is, you know, as an apologist, um, I'm sure you have your, your own thoughts on on the problem of evil, and um, so I was kind of curious as to how um, that issue, and then how you would look at these two films in relation to your answer to that question and, ah. and do either of them touch on that or, or that kind of thing yeah actually and the shack actually even t- uh, leveraged the free will defense um initially when they start talking about human beings and human beings have to make choices you have to love be able to love god if that means if you have to be able to love god that means you're going to have to be able to turn away from god um right because because love can never be compelled you can't compel someone to love you it doesn't love doesn't work that way it has to be freely given but if it's freely given, that means you have to have a choice between loving, which means you know, uh, putting the other person above yourself, or putting yourself above the other person, and and all sin ultimately becomes selfishness at some point. Uh, so I think I think the uh, the shack talked about that to some degree. It didn't it didn't go far enough. It it ignored natural evil completely. Just didn't even think about answering that question about. You know, what about acts that are not necessarily attributable directly to mankind? Um, 
so I, I was a little bit interested there. Uh, I think silence colors our understanding of suffering in a different way as opposed to thinking about suffering as something that happens to us and it's not fair to us in this world. Uh, silence makes us start to think about, well, is the suffering of this world worthy to be compared to the graces that we get in the next world, right? Because he asks Father Rodriguez, this man, he's in paradise, now paradiso. I think a lady came to be baptized, uh, baptize her baby. And she said, the baby will, you know, if the baby dies, he'll be in paradise with Jesus and my child, right? And, and the father agrees. It's a typical, you know, uh, theological response of a 16th century or 1600 Catholic uh, priest. But um, it, it makes us reshape the concept of evil. And it makes us understand that even the most holy can be put in a certain situation where evil maybe the the uh, apostatizing of your faith itself uh, can flourish. That in an evil world, I mean, this was part of the, the whole concept of Japan being a swamp, that, you know, what if it's so evil that the good can't flourish? What, what do we do in that? Uh, of course, I don't buy that line. I think God can do anything anywhere. It may take several hundred years, as it did, but, uh, but it at least gives us a different understanding what do you do with this his response i remember at one point rodriguez's response was yes my life is in danger but the joy that i receive from ministering to these simple christians has more than compensated for my in you know hiding in the hut and and being uh fearful for my life um, I'll do, I, I do it all again because even though I'm, I'm contained and I'm confined and I'm suffering, the joy of giving them hope in the gospel is worth it. And I think that's a very biblical understanding of uh, suffering. Uh, here's the ultimate thing that comes down, and, and this, is, this is the point that, that we see with the problem of the Japanese culture is every worldview has to have an answer to the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. Because it's a problem for everybody. It's not just a problem for the Christian. Mm -hmm. So the atheist can argue, you know, well, where's your God? You know, what about the child born with uh, cancer? You know, and say, oh, yeah, that's a good question. What about it? What do you say? What is, what's the atheist answer to the child? You know, nature is red in tooth and claw, survival of the fittest, and oh, well, you're done. You know, that, that, what else can you say if there's no God and we're all here by accident? Uh, the, the Buddhist, the, the panentheist, the, the person who, who says that we're all just part cogs within the greater machine of the world, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Some, some of them will say evil is merely an illusion. They'll, they'll doubt the existence of evil. Uh, right, that and it's, it's a typical uh, Vedanta Buddhist approach that says that says you know in every, you have the yin and the yang in every light there's a little evil in every evil there's a little light it's all in balance what you have to do is learn to ignore those things and you'll become as a candle that has been blown out uh, you, you'll cease to feel it at all and that's your state of nirvana 
So evil is merely illusory. It's it's up to you to withdraw and and reflect and meditate inside yourself until you feel nothing, uh, and ignore it. So it's either it's either oh well, evil is is there. Uh, you can ignore evil, or you can uh, try to conquer evil, which will never happen. Christianity says, no, there is one who knows evil, who can defeat evil, who has experienced evil. We are the only faith where God comes down and firsthand experiences the ramifications of evil and suffering. He is a God who suffers, which is one of the things that the shack actually does get right, that, that uh, God himself takes part in humanity and experiences the evil in our stead so that we may be free. And because of that, we can understand that there is an existence coming where there will be no more evil. Now, may, will that be for everyone? I don't necessarily believe so. But I say that the problem of evil is answered, uh, the problem of suffering is answered in, in the fact that uh, in this world you have tribulation, but Jesus has overcome this world. And that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glories that are to come. Yes, there is suffering here, but what we see is Christianity reflects both in Christ's suffering and in the joy that the martyrs take in going to their own deaths for the next world. That this the sufferings of this age are just simply not worthy to be compared to that which is ahead of us. Good thoughts. Now, if somebody wanted to learn more about you, what would be the website? Uh, go to www.comereason.org, and we've got, or you can follow me on Twitter at Come Reason, or uh, Facebook, or uh, I'm everything is Come Reason. So, uh, Instagram, Come Reason, uh, YouTube, all all over the place. Uh, but the website has the most information and blog posts and all, links to all the other things. That would be a good thing. You sign up for the newsletter, all kinds of stuff over there. And we'll put speaking engagements and stuff like that up as well. When you also have a podcast, and if, if somebody were to That's have right. iPhone out or whatever and wanted to put, pull, pull up iTunes or Podcast Republic or whatever, what's the name of the podcast? Yeah, the podcast is Come Let Us Reason Together. And uh, we put out a new uh, edition every Sunday. And uh, or you can go to podcast.comreason.org. That's the uh, web address, and you can find the RSS feed there. Awesome! Thank you so much, Lenny. I really appreciate you doing this with me, and and uh, it was it was fun talking with you. Thanks, Cody. I appreciate it. Talk to you.